0: Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state of the art sensors and software, repeat successful runs, and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.
1: All right. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I am Keisha, and I'm back in studio co moderating with my good friend Mandy. Mandy, how are you? Hey,
0: Keisha, we're here for episode 65, also going live over on YouTube momentarily, so if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us our quest- your questions, and I'll get those to the team. You'll know how we do it. If you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all the platforms, so we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club, and we got a ton of crop steering questions from you guys uh, this week, so let's get right to it. Back over to you, Keisha.
1: Thank you, Mandy. All right. If you're live with us here and you have a question, feel free to type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or I can ask for you. Seth and Jason are in the house. How are you guys doing today? Good. Yeah.
2: Yeah, doing doing fine.
1: Excellent. Well, it sounds like you're ready to go, and I'm 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 starting out with a with a juicy one. So I'm going to read this whole question, but it, it's asking for an overview, which y'all know I love. Okay, so Just in the Grow wrote in, "Hi, I wanted to get some clarification on you guys' suggested feed schedule for vegetative and generative feeding. When in veg, is it generally suggested to give bigger shot volumes earlier in the day, about five feet a day?" Then for stretch, as I understand, you want to start feeding more feed with smaller volumes to encourage stacking of the nodes, about 8 to 10 feet for a day, but with smaller shot, bo- shot volumes. Then after stretch, do you suggest that I start lessening the amount of shots? but increasing the shot volume in the morning to achieve water concentration level early in, in the day. Basically, my question is, does vegetative watering generally mean less feeding events and generative slash stretch mean more feed events? Then bulking, we should go back to veg with less shots, but more shot volume. Finally, when finishing and ripening, should we go back to more feeds, smaller shot volume? Thank you so much for your time. Did y'all get all that?
2: Yeah, I think we can pretty, pretty sum that up pretty quickly here. Um, a little bit backwards there, your typical generative feed is going to be fewer large shots early on in the day with that long dryback period and with a vegetative feed or bulking, that's going to be more frequent, small shots. And when we're talking about any of these, uh, type of strategies, typically we want to look at our P one phase, whether we're in generative or vegetative as the time that we're going to try to approach field capacity with our plants. And that's just so that we have some control over runoff and we don't have a bunch of different plants running off at different times throughout the day.
3: Yeah, the easiest way to do it is just to start thinking about P1s and P2s. And uh, I don't know exactly what P stands for. I'm guessing it's phase. Program, phase. Uh, what, what controller uh, are you using? <laughs> Yeah, and so for you know generative, let's get up to field capacity fairly quickly, you know whether it be one, two, or three hours, and uh, then we let things dry back for the rest of the time. And then for vegetative, we're looking at you know getting our P ones in, getting up to saturation, and then maintaining a high water content for um, extended duration of photo period. So you know we usually we're talking about eight hours, um, sometimes ten hours. Uh, you know if you're in a smaller media for doing vegetative and Kind of some of the plant science behind this is thinking about each irrigation, bringing fresh oxygen and encouraging a a plant growth response. Um, When we're doing that, you know, that plant's going to be pulling water uh, every time that we do it, and it's going to be growing vertically faster. So when we do uh, larger drybacks, we're decreasing the osmotic potential between the substrate and the roots, which is going to make it so that plant stacks up. little bit shorter and so that's usually why we talk about generative stacking Um, one because we're trying to get those node spaces nice and tight and then two usually we're trying to let the ec rise up a little bit throughout that generative stacking period and then vegetative bulking after we've initiated reproductive hormone
2: balance in the plant we're kind of uh encouraging as much growth as possible in those bud sites Yep. And then, you know, I guess to round that out, when we go back to ripening for those last two weeks, typically sometimes more, we're going right back to that generative growth or generative uh, irrigation strategy where we're bringing it up to field capacity with as few large shots as we can early in the day, usually, you know, one, two, three hours after lights on, typically twos, right where we start that out. And then Trying to irrigate for a short amount of time as possible. So if we can get a two hour irrigation window without achieving any channeling, that's exactly what we're looking for. And then a long dry back. And then as as always, I love to highlight, we're always leaning one way or the other. There's rarely a run out there that people don't run into uh, some modifications to these, right? A lot of times you won't have your plant to pot size perfect. So in ripening, like, yeah, we want to go that classic generative strategy, but hey, we might have to put on a P2 in the afternoon just to make sure we don't overdry it overnight.
3: Yeah, and, and when Seth talks about, you know, as few shots as possible, usually we're talking about, you know, four um, irrigations, you know, within an hour. So irrigate, 15 minutes later, irrigate again, uh, 15 minutes later, irrigate again, um, you know, get up to build capacity and you know, ab- about an hour. And so if we saw yesterday's dry back at say, uh, 15%, we might do four or 5% shots. Um, that'll give us just a little bit of runoff and then we can collect our, um, manual readings, check pH and EC, and then that runoff, if we need to, um, you know, that being said, if you have fast flow rate drippers, sometimes you want to break that up into even more irrigations. And so, you know, really what it comes down to is the the duration, I, what I call it, irrigation window. Um, so that's, you know, from first irrigation to last irrigation, how much time is that? So, for generative, we're looking at usually one to three hours, depending on media size and, um, and application in those cases. And then, you know, vice versa, a lot of times for uh, vegetative steering, we'll keep the same P1s as we had with generative. We're just adding some P2s to keep that field or that um, water content up.
2: And there's a few modifications, you know, I will say if you are in a let's say you're not in a one gallon pot, you're in a two gallon or bigger pot. There's ways where we're going to work with that to try to optimize that bulking. So if you're in a bigger pot, that's not getting as much of a dryback. We might really focus on some of those really small shots. So we get that stimulation, but we only have so much opportunity. If we dry back 10%, let's say, 10, 1% shots would be the max granularity I could have on that irrigation schedule. And if we're going into bulking, A lot of times that's kind of where we'll optimize like hey i had four irrigations i want to get eight or ten on today as part of my bulking strategy sometimes i will take that p1 and double the number of shots i have and cut the volume in half just to take advantage of the fact that i am putting water on and i know i can use that time to stimulate plant growth because sometimes you know i mean the alternative is taking it all the way up to field capacity and then just hitting runoff all day and pushing a bunch of water and fertilizer through the root zone and having it just run to waste, which is not what.
1: There it is. Thank y'all for that overview. Respect the technique. All right. Sending it over to Manny. What's going on on YouTube. YouTube. <laughs>
0: wow. YouTube. We just created something new there. Um, wow. That was a great overview. Y'all just blew my mind. Thank you for that. And thank you guys over on YouTube for these questions. Blaze wants to know he has a couple questions. Hey guys. How do you avoid overwatering young plants while veg steering, and what are your protocols for fixing plants that are overwatered?
3: Um. So, I mean, first off, is have some way to monitor water content and water usage in veg plant structures. Um, you know, my favorite way to avoid it is use an appropriate sized vegging media. Um, so, if we're looking at something like um rock wool, you know start off in a 4 by 4 if you're gonna end up on slabs veg them in the 4 by 4s and then you get on the slab in flower and that's going to be one of the easiest ways to make sure we're not overwatering is you know, don't have too much water holding capacity in that substrate and so um you know for cocoa there there are cocoa starter blocks um sometimes if you have really productive plants you can go right from a, a starter um You know like a a a little plug into a one gallon media um in that case you know just make sure that you're doing a great job with your rooting in practices and uh and go from there as far as if you have uh plants that too much water um you know what happens is if the plants have too much water usually we're not getting uh, oxygen refreshment because we can't irrigate enough times to that point. And then the the roots get lazy. So they're not going to start engulfing the um, bulk of the media. And so roots are always seeking out areas that have more water content. And when we're irrigating, you know, we're pushing water through the substrate and that helps those roots reach out, get the corners, get the bottom um, and take advantage of that media. And so my 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 terrible way of saying it is, you know, anytime we try to fix something with plants, is don't do it next time. Um, yep. Seth might have some super secrets on it.
2: <laughs> I mean, if you're saying you're overwatering, you already admitted the problem. So, <laughs> step one usually is to try to correct those cultural habits. And you know, I know in veg, a lot of times, um, there's still quite a few growers out there that don't have automated irrigation in veg. That you know, and and to be realistic right like in veg we don't typically need nearly as much light we're going for a lower input room typically than the flower room because that's where we're actually pulling dollars out of so looking at your holistic veg approach and saying hey um, even if i am hand watering what is my root in strategy because if i just stick a plant in and then water it with a vegetative irrigation strategy that's not rooting in and that's not exactly what we want to be doing even if you don't have substrate sensors you can always go real old school and get a load cell in there, get a scale and go in and say, hey, how much did this pot weigh when I transplanted the plant in? I'm going to go back and keep weighing that same pot. I'm going to flag it and see, okay, have I lost 10, 15, 20% of my water content and use that as a line to make my watering decisions? And then, you know, a big part the next big step too is uh, moving to automated irrigation so you can put on a 1% shot even if it's one percent of a point three gallon cocoa pot and that's part of the key there too is you know if i'm just walking around with a hose or even having automated irrigation but i'm making that call based on hey i walked around and picked up some plants i'm probably you know my my hand scale is just never that accurate it's always biased right compared to what the last package is something i picked up that had a weight on it says <laughs> so um getting that real accurate look even if it is like i said really simple even with a a load cell and then the other one is hey if you are still hand watering using smaller or bigger pots looking at an intermediate media you know going with a four inch pot even if it is a cocoa perlite mix and a four inch hard pot that you then transplant into your bigger pot um, having that smaller media like jason was saying it really helps the plant seek out that water it doesn't have to try as hard And then, you know, if you've got problems in the facility, you're like, hey, we're just not going to overcome this with equipment immediately. Use the old crutch perlite, you know, it's not, no one wants to admit it, but that's, that's what it, what you got to do sometimes if you just can't stop overwatering or if uh, you're having a family member come water your garden that doesn't know anything about weed, you know. (laughs) things like that. Like just look at maybe where you do have some weaknesses in that system and figure out what you can do to pad yourself and set yourself up for success. I mean, that's a a big part of all this. Even we're talking about rooting in is going back to the root cause of the problem. What is it overwatering? What could it be? Well, we put too much water on what's our actual water content. We have media that's too wet, or do we also have some environmental problems in the, in the, uh, Bedroom, you know, sometimes when we're looking at plants that are struggling to root in, we got a combination of massive overwatering and uh, too dry. That's super common to have in bedrooms where we don't have this huge crop putting a lot of moisture into the air at all times. So, hey, if it looks like at 80 degrees, we're actually at a point, not a point, but 1.4 VPD or 1.6 or something, those small clones that are trying to root in are not gonna be nearly as efficient because they're already in drought response mode, which is not how we're gonna really get good rooting in. They're just trying to stay alive. They don't have the uh, the means to efficiently grow in that type of environment. So even if you are just struggling with rooting in and you're saying you're overwatering, really look at all the other environmental factors, you know, and and a lot of times what I like to do is say, hey, why why am I struggling with this at this particular facility? when I know that I've seen other people have success and no problems doing the same thing, like what's different here than there. Cause a lot of times, you know, and we, we say this a lot, like there are great products on the market. It it might not be your media. It might not be your nutrients. It might be a really small operator error or limitation that the facility has that you just haven't singled out yet. You know, it's, it's hard to place blame without quantifying everything. So start there.
3: And kind of just to, um, you know, talk a little bit, about, I love using scales. Like I just use some kitchen scales. They're pretty cheap on Amazon and uh, you know, you can get a few of them and leave them under your block. Uh, really what you're doing is taking the the weight of the block when it's dry, uh, tearing that out. And then, you know, as far as plant weight, you have to kind of account for that as a, a negligible impact. Um, do keep it in mind, you know, as, the inputs that we're putting in are adding weight to the plant, but I'm just going to share a quick simple math thing that, you know, we talk about and I I like to use grams and milliliters because obviously one milliliter of water equals one gram of mass. And just because uh, it's easy at about one liter, if we're looking at a four by four by four, um, we've got 1,030 milliliters of uh, actual substrate volume. And so if we come in at, say, you know 70% water content and field capacity, that means that we're going to have 700 grams uh, of, of weight in there. And so before you irrigate, take your weight. After you irrigate, take your weight. And the next day, take your weight. And then you start to get an idea of um, water loss in, in that substrate. So definitely recommend just use Fairly simple math, you know, volume and flow rate calculations to decide how big a shot do I want while I'm running in. And after my plants have established a, a good root zone in that new media, then, um, you know, what kind of vegging shots do I want to add in there? And so just just break it down by
2: volumes. And and if you have a kitchen scale, use some weight. Yep. And, you know, I- that might sound a little scary sometimes, but you can keep it real, real simple by just taking your hydrated block at transplant, weighing that, and then remember that one gram per milliliter rule. Go to, you know, like let's say you're using a two gallon cocoa, go look at what the manufacturer specs. Are they, I'll, and I'll really stress this when we're talking about gallons, is it a US or imperial gallon? Because that will throw off your measurements from time to time. But you can do this really simply based on manufacturer. Uh, information You don't necessarily need to uh, build a spreadsheet like Jason has there or do any of that. You can just say, hey, I, I had about a gallon. How many milliliters do I want to see leave this block before, you know, we go back and bring it back to field capacity? And usually we want to see yeah, 15 to 20, 25 percent minimum total loss in water before we're hitting that p1 strategy again and it's it's really important to remember that rooting in is its own irrigation strategy you could say it's leaning generative you could say parts of it might lean vegetative but we're rooting in we're not trying to we're trying to steer the plant to produce more roots and establish itself not necessarily looking to produce a specific above ground morphological response with this irrigation strategy
3: thanks for breaking that. More simply, I wasn't trying to make it complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and the one thing to also keep in mind is uh, you know we'll talk about some manufacturers in a you know four by four or six by six by four or any of those. Um, a lot of times those are just rough dimensions. And so if you're noticing in my calculations, I actually use the um, the metric measurements provided right from that manufacturer. And that's just going to help you stay accurate with that information. Um,
2: yeah, take advantage of that because I have pulled out a tape measure and I can tell you that uh, Grodan definitely sizes everything based on metric units. So it's not for exactly four inches by four inches by four inches. It's all in centimeters, and milliliters. So get that info.
0: Get that info. Oh, my gosh. And that was great advice. So much great advice. Um, whew, we're still getting so many questions over on YouTube. So keep sending those in. We got another question from Blaze. When transplanting into cocoa, some say you should buffer the medium with Cal and Mag. What are your recommendations for large-scale facilities?
2: Uh, I mean, make sure your nutrient mix that you're using to charge up your cocoa initially is actually at a high enough EC. Make sure it's pHed correctly. Um, look at what cocoa you're using. You know, if I've got a new brand of cocoa that I'm using new to me, I like to take some either RO or deionized water, hydrate a block, push that runoff and see, see what's coming out of there. Do I have a lot of red coming out straight up dirty cocoa? Do I have a lot of sodium, a lot of salt coming out of it because that cocoa came from a really salty environment and it hasn't been rinsed properly. So baselining there. And then, you know, with a lot of different nutrient programs, we, we are supplementing calcium and magnesium. super common to have a CalMag component. Make sure you've got that with your mix in proportion to everything else. So if you, uh, We're mixing at a 2.0 and now you're mixing at a 3.0, make sure you put, you know, that much more proportionally CalMag into your mix. So you're not deficient on anything. You've got a balanced mix ratio specifically for cocoa. um, The CalMag is not necessarily specifically, you know, useful in cocoa, but for a long, long time, you know, we had uh, all of these different fertilizer products out there that the closest thing that you could say you're selling it for was tomatoes, right? Uh, or other vegetables hydroponic vegetables Um, cannabis is a very calcium hungry plant and calcium and magnesium are two nutrients that can be limiting to the uptake of other nutrients so typically we want to make sure that we have plenty of calcium available for the plant if it needs it you know that's also part of why in most commercial mixes that you see around now um, especially for your early flower stretch mix we're looking at calcium nitrate as a primary nitrogen source That's because we also get that calcium, which is very essential to uh, healthy growth in cannabis. So to to answer it, yes, use it, but make sure you're using it as a balanced part of your your, uh, program.
0: Sounds like the way we used to um, talk about cereals and eating breakfast and stuff. Yes, with some considerations, you probably might need that. (laughs) Um, Awesome. We're going to keep going down our list. TD wants to know. Does the Terrace 12 tell you how much EC or PPM of each nutrient, or just the overall EC of the medium? Can we give them an idea of um, what the, C, uh, the Terrace 12 reads?
3: Water content, electrical connectivity, and uh, temperature of the substrate. So the answer is no. Uh, you know What it's looking at is how well does an electrical current run through the media that it's in, and that's what it's telling you that just like any electrolytes, you know, looking at gatorade for example, if you put a Charles 12 in some Gatorade, it's gonna tell you how much uh, <laughs> ions are, are passing electricity in that substrate. And when anytime we're looking at salts, it's gonna the more salts we have, the easier it is for electricity to pass through that substrate. Um so the answer is no, it doesn't tell you the individuals. There's really not much equipment on the market that can do that for you at, at this point. They're really expensive lab stuff. Um, but, but nothing
2: has hit you that I know of. Yeah, there's there's not a sensor that I know of that would, as a probe, be able to differentiate what salts you're getting. You could pull your runoff sample and go try to get that analyzed. But typically, the big thing is we've got you know <clears throat> electrical conductivity measured in decimeters per meter. What we do know is that at 3.0 or 2.0 or 1.5 every ppm meter out there is using electrical resistance or conductivity to figure out what that ppm reading might be so the raw data expression would be in dsm the refined version that we're, a lot of us are used to seeing off of our ppm pen is actually a conversion based on ppm 500 or 700. so a 3.0 would be that's what experimentally uh, has been tested and proven with that meter if i go and mix up a 1500 ppm solution of an ionic compound and then dissolve it in water or not well it isn't dissolved it's mixed up if i mix that up and test it that reads at 3.0 so even when you've been looking at say a ppm meter for years it's always been extrapolating off of that ppm is just easy to think about as a cultivator because that's milligrams a liter right like if i'm mixing up any quantity of salts into water, I can calculate the weight that I need based on, hey, I want X amount of PPM. I have X number of gallons or liters of of fluid that I need to mix into. Here's how much salt I need to be putting into it. And then also we can look at the individual salt components and break down how many PPMs of what nutrient you're getting in there. Um, Typically though, when we're looking at this, if you are unless you have a really weird condition or you're using a fertilizer you know nothing about what's coming out of there is much less important than how well you're balancing how it goes in and what's going on in the root zone you know we can even look at tissue analysis results and say hey you've got x amount of ppm in tissue of this this and this calcium nitrate we can go down the list but um it's not always even that going to be directly like, hey, you need to supplement uh, boron or molybdenum or <laughs> phosphate. It's like, oh, well, the plant didn't get enough in. Is it a missing component or is it just an issue in how it was delivered to the plant? Or does this plant really suck at uptaking that particular nutrient?
3: This is where keep an eye on it. Runoff pH is is really the first easy indicator of how well nutrients are staying balanced um, depending on the plant's nutritional needs. And kind of my rule of thumb is you know, if you see that pH drift too much, um, especially with a specific strain and, and you're used to using that nutrient line, then go um, send in for a um, leaf tissue analysis and get an idea of hey, what, what is this specific strain hungry on? Mm-hmm.
2: And then, you know, I mean, to extend that a lot of times even at a high level a lot of times what we're going to be doing to fix nutritional deficiencies is either uh you know if you're using a product that doesn't have something you need it's adding that right back to that calmag supplementation question a lot of times though we find if there's not a ph issue sometimes it's just more you know feeding at a 3.0 versus a 2.0 Can make a big difference for a lot of plants or getting that root zone ec from uh it's say between a 2.0 and a 4.0 getting that up so we're between a 4.0 and an 8.0 let's say that way we just have enough available nutrition for the plant so while while it's interesting don't overthink it i guess is my best advice when you're worried about what exactly is coming out of there because we can only act on a certain level right
0: Totally. Thanks y'all. Um, Eduardo has a question about pest management. Can pest management be treated or cured during flower, uh, during the flower phase? I noticed a little bit of pests on my plants during day six of flower. I've been spraying antifungus bee safe spray during their sleep and been keeping up with VPD. So we have any advice.
3: Know what pests you're trying to deal with. Um, you know, you can use definitely some type of predatory biological, you know, some other type of bug to, to help neutralize, um, pests, but you have to know specifically what you're dealing with. So go stick it under your microscope and Google search some things, um, you can probably actually drop the picture into Google search and uh, it'll tell you which bug that is. I don't know. Um, so that's, that's my favorite way is, is try to use um, non-chemical methods in, in flower, especially towards late flower, because any of that stuff might have some residual. Uh, Seth's probably got some, some chemical recommendations.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't mind spraying at all, but typically I try to do it, you know, up to about week two in flower max and then i'll switch over to using some biologicals Um, if you're on day six of flower and you've got uh what you would suspect is a spider mite or aphid infestation or something um, there's always organic options you've got things like your dr zyme a boatload of different uh, horticultural oils out there sold as different pesticides that are pretty low impact personally um if i can get it on pre uh pre-flower set usually i'm going to go with something like botanigard max or pyganic or a good old bug bomb of some sort some kind of pyrethrin that's going to go in and really knock down things heavily and then after that i'll switch over to bringing in beneficial insects Uh, and part of that's just because it's this is integrated pest management not extermination but we've got a uh, strategically really bring the hammer down sometimes to keep these populations under control. Um, there's really nothing about that. No other way to go around. It. And then also, you know, if you're, if you haven't been growing a long time and like, let's say this is your fifth round and you're noticing this stuff coming back and getting worse at different times, facility cleanliness and maintenance. I mean, if you're not doing a really good job cleaning out your room between rounds, how can we expect the next run to be bug free if they've actually, you know, taken up residence inside of your growth space and you're not getting rid of them on a regular basis and it's frustrating sometimes you're there you know steaming out cracks spraying the pressure washer bleaching everything sometimes you do i mean it can get weird sometimes you'll break out a caulk gun and start caulking up cracks in your concrete floor or cinder blocks or anywhere that these bugs can hide so and
3: to kind of build on that, you know, integrated pest management, the, one of the best ways to help avoid pests is have as healthy a plants as possible. Um, and so, you know, definitely take a look at your environments, um, some of your pruning practices, making sure that, you know, you're creating a consistent environment. And, and if, if you have encountered some pests, every once in a while you can tweak your environment a little bit to something that helps reduce how quickly they reproduce.
2: Yeah. And you know, certain, certain basic practices, um, like if you're bringing genetics into your facility, um, I, I personally don't bring rooted plants into anywhere that I'm going to grow. I want to be able to go get my own clones where I'm going to take those, isolate them, quarantine them, and I'm not transporting any kind of media into my facility with me. And ideally I'll be able to take those clones in somewhere. Like I said, quarantine them, oftentimes be able to do, uh, either a or of some kind of sanitizing dip. I prefer bleach and then rooting those out and having being able to quarantine them for at least a few weeks while I watch and just see like, Hey, did I accidentally bring anything in and not clean it well enough? Because once it's in, you know, uh, patient zero doesn't matter in your garden because all the rest of them are sick now. So we want to avoid that. And then, you know, another one is just looking at certain maybe facility design features that, or practices that do promote pest you know residence and spread like if we've got our moms cloning and veg all happening in one room that means I really don't have a chance to clean that room out if the room's always full of plants so if I have something like let's say root aphids if I can never clean those clean the moms out of my bedroom those root aphids are just going to be going back and forth between all those incoming veg plants and those mom plants so all right what, what's the solution there well we need to fix the facility here and make it so we can isolate things the way we need to or if not hey we're going to be doing a lot of root drenches we're going to be uh dealing with pest management not extermination right they always go back to that um, and then you know another one too is just practices on site you know if you've got eight flower rooms going try to structure your day so you're moving from the youngest to the oldest room so if you've got if part of your chores for the day is like hey my responsibility is i check clones manage vet like let's just say i'm i'm running a small two two flower room grow with two employees here's seth if i kn- i know i'm responsible for clones and checking all my rooms every day clones are going to be first followed by veg followed by then going into the flower rooms and when i f- if i have to pick my flower rooms i'm going to go into that youngest one first And go forward because as we get farther and farther into flower there's less we can do right i'm not going to be out there spraying pyganic at week six all over my nice frosty buds so if i do have an infection in there now i'm stuck with biologicals i don't want to be in a spot where i could carry that pest back to a younger room where it might have even more of an impact because it's affecting plant health at an earlier stage
0: awesome and let me clarify I read his question wrong. He meant to ask you guys about powdery mildew. So I'm sure mm. some of your advice will still um, answer that <laughs> question. But um, so his question is about powdery mildew and how he can avoid that. And I haven't noticed any mold since treating it and they're on week two of flour. So if we have any advice.
2: I'd probably try to get uh, some sort of env- environmental sensor in there so you can see what it's doing overnight and just make sure you stay out of the environmental conditions where we typically see powdery mildew form. You know, just just like mold, botrytis, powdery mildew, we see that at lower temperatures and more humid environments. You know, if you go outside all around, like, let's say Seattle, maybe sometimes parts of the Bay Area in the winter, you'll see powdery mildew on all kinds of different plants. And that's just because it's the right time of the year that it can thrive. I know where I live every year, my zucchinis and squash just get taken out by powdery mildew in the fall, but that's right when the overnight temps and humidity really get into the sweet zone for powdery mildew to grow. So my guess, there's probably a decent chance your room's getting cold at night and you don't have a dehu running or something that's keeping up with that.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, We have a question from Chris over on YouTube. This is a little bit long, so um, bear with me. Take a deep breath, sorry. Chris wants to know, when we first enter veg, we're having a difficult time reading uh, reaching 10 to 15% drybacks without a shortened irrigation window. What should be prioritized? Hitting 10 to 15% drybacks in P3 or ensuring that our irrigation window is long enough to not induce ripening cues? And or would shortening the P2 shot interval to 1.5% dryback to induce more shots help us bridge the gap with a shortened window? We're running 1.5-gallon cocoa pots under 1,000-watt HPS bulbs, and we have a heavy defiliation in the week before going into veg as well. Thanks. Love the show. Let me know if you want me to drop that in the chat.
3: I, I think we got it. He's, he's basically just saying, hey, you know, during veg, my plants aren't transpiring enough for me to hit ideal drybacks. to I reduce my my window. Um, I would probably just decrease the size of the shots, um, and, or maybe the number of, of shots. And so we're still, you know, vegetative irrigation, but we're allowing the plant transpiration evaporation to be faster than the amount of water that we're adding to it throughout the day.
2: Well, it's something to remember too, and this is why, uh, I was, it cracks me up, sometimes the terminology we use that we, uh, you know, have vegetative steering in the middle of flower. Um, when we're talking about actual vegetative growth too, in that cycle in the plant's life, when we're looking at different strains and what our goals are, we might be running, you know, quite a few irrigations in a day, a much more traditionally vegetative irrigation style for some strains others. We might actually be going somewhat generatively just so we can already start to stack node sites and keep that, that plant stature smaller. You know, if I'm dealing with something that's, uh, typically known to get really lanky and stretch out. And I know that I can't have an eight foot tall plant on my table in the room. And I also am trying to manage, let's say these four cultivars are all going to run at the same time. Okay. That means that they're all getting the same amount of time in prop, the same amount of time in the, in uh, the veg room. One of them, I might be pulsing eight or 10 times a day giving it a p1 true p1 p2 feed other ones i might only be giving them three or four feeds generative p1 style just trying to keep that down so when we are in veg that ideal dryback is nice you know during veg after transplant that's one reason we are waiting for that overall dryback to come in is so we've got to sign that the plants are rooted healthily Um, if you're not achieving a 10 to 15 percent dryback from your Peak water concentration down to you know the next day before you irrigate. so, like Jason said, maybe just pull some of that off. Don't give it so much. Shorten up your irrigation window a little bit. Try to get more dry back. and then also, if you're really struggling with it, you might have kind of messed up that rooting in period, and that's kind of where we need to be is actually waiting for a deep dry back while we're just stimulating that root growth.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. Um we have a Couple more minutes uh, to get through some questions before we want to show you guys something new we have in the platform. Ooh, um, Chuck wants to know, what's up, guys? I was wondering if you are growing with synthetics or readily available food, will the uh, will the plant less likely to get root bound? I've grown in soil with a one gallon pot. And I feel like since the food is less available immediately that the pot gets more root bound. Does that mean that soil plants will need a slightly larger pot? Correct me if I'm wrong or what do you guys think?
2: If you're going full organic inputs, typically you probably are going to need a bigger pot in order to get everything in that you want to. And you know, a lot of times when we're talking about going that route, um, we're, we're looking more at like full-term outdoor growing just because it takes so much time for certain components to break down. So if we mix up, amend that soil and go ahead and try to flower out in it, we know that, Hey, our nitrogen source is going to decompose and last for so long. I'm going to try to time my amounts and put the right amount in at the right time. So I might let my soil cook for a month, maybe two months, just depends on what I'm trying to do. But There is a lot harder art in that, and typically you do need a uh, bigger pot. You know, soil takes a long time to develop, and you need a lot of different things happening inside of there to actually make those nutrients available. So uh, the root-bound thing has less to do probably with soil versus soilless, because if we look at, like, even, you know, your classic cocoa bag, at the end of an eight-week run, if I pop that bag open, I should see mostly roots a lot of the cocoa will have washed away at that point um i i would say the synthetic nutrient issue or not issue the synthetic nutrients versus the uh, organic really don't have much to do with the root binding it's more about how much work you want to do in your grow room to help keep that soil alive or keep pests down
3: yeah and you know i think as far as substrate size when we look at you know, growing in a one gallon cocoa, typically if we're hitting a big plant, that that cocoa is like almost solid roots by the the end of it. Um, You know, we're providing synthetic nutrients. So the nutrients are instantly available. Um, So all the cocoa is doing is making a place for the water to be held um, while that that plant is accessing it. Whereas usually when we're in a living soil, you know, we're gonna have to have more space for those roots to to reach out. access you know that surface area to the the biologicals that are breaking down throughout that process so you know typically we're, we're going to you know want to have some types of um, you know mycorrhizal in there uh encourage lots of surface area access to those roots
2: yeah and i mean you know something to think about too and this is true with all agriculture if we looked at uh traditional by bi- you know um traditional organic sources of let's say nitrogen if we're looking at you know putting cow manure out in a field, if you want to get the, just because of the total nitrogen content in that compared to salt fertilizers, the amounts of different types of compost you'd have to put on to achieve the same nutrient load in the soil is just immense, like incredibly, like literally bulky would take so much time and effort to get it out there that you're trying to say, Hey, at a certain point, uh, if we want to break it down to fossil fuels, am I hauling this? organic material around using fossil fuels to put on fields or am I burning some fossil fuels to make fertilizer (laughs) what at the end of the day we start to hit an efficiency breakover.
0: That's a great way to think about it Um, and that's a great question Chuck we'll get to your other question next, um, but I do think that we have something to show you in the platform so I'll pass it back to you Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Oh my
1: God, so many good questions this week. All right, but we do want to be sure that we walk y'all through a new update in the Arroyo platform. So Beth and Jason, what's new with our notification center?
3: Yeah, so basically we have expanded the features and uh, notifications available on your account or other members in your facilities account. First off is just kind of clean things up as far as how they're displayed here and make it a little bit easier to, to deal with. We've broke it out into data type alerts, hardware type alerts, and then task type alerts. And so you can now enable push notifications from the web app. Um, These will be pushing to your mobile via the mobile app, but you control whether you're getting those um, on or off. Historically, you have to go into the mobile app to do that. Just makes it a little bit easier to manage uh, how you're getting the information that you want to see. And also you can now subscribe only to specific rooms. So if you're a cultivator that only works in rooms 6, 7, and 8, uh, you can ignore, um, turn off the rooms uh, that you don't want to be uh, informed about. So maybe I'm only curious about flower 1 and 5 for EC. And I can say save. It says preferences saved. And in this case, I'm only looking at specific rooms. That's the meat of it. Pretty simple, but effective.
1: Nice. Thank you, Jason. And then like, just give it, let's, uh, what are are the benefits of the alerts? Why would anybody want to sign up for those?
3: If something (laughs) breaks or if someone at your facility makes a, a set point wrong, um, Gives you a heads up and you can't, you can't always be in the garden watching the parameters. Uh, You can't always be on the computer or on the mobile app watching the parameters. So, you know, if we see our humidities, you know, maybe I get a text message every uh, evening at photo period off. Well, I I know that probably need to do a little bit better job managing um, how my, my D are running. Uh, Make sure that, you know, we don't run into some PM issues.
2: Yep. And you know, I think one thing I find that this helps growers do just alerts in general, but also, you know, we, through our recipes function, we have the ability to set, you know, what is my target range and what is an actionable alert. So as a grower, a cultivator, you can spend time tuning those to action items only. And then you can, once you have everything set up through Arroyo in terms of, uh, excuse me, your recipe and everything else, now you can start saying, okay, I'm going to get back to the garden. Arroyo is going to alert me when something needs my attention so the goal is you know you're not only sitting here analyzing data all day you can still go do your job and just use this to help economize you know keeping an eye on things and avoiding disaster because hey i mean people have to go home and sleep sometimes like jason said you can't always be in the grow room and also i think most growers out there don't want to only sit at a computer either so this will help them balance that
3: yeah, and you know one of my favorite ways to set alerts is to look at some previous runs and if they performed as expected, you know, HVAC, you know, irrigations were all what you imagine are right, then use the highs and the lows from that to evaluate here's what happens when nothing in the room breaks, when set points are right, when all the equipment works, when irrigation was appropriate. And that way you're not getting alert fatigue. And one of the worst things that you can do is set your parameters too tight um be like hey i absolutely have to be on these ranges and uh then you start ignoring alerts if you get too many of them so definitely you know, be, be conscientious when you're setting those make sure that they are signifying uh you know uh, emergency or uh, a warning situation
2: yeah i mean your, your example jason with uh one employee working only in certain rooms that's exactly part of why we uh, expanded, you know, the granularity in these alert options, just because we want people, we want them to be as effective as possible. And if that means, hey, I'm responsible for the irrigation in two rooms, I'm going to focus on those. That way I don't get an alert whenever everyone else is messing up and learn to ignore it. It's, it's too easy when you're getting notifications from, let's just say at any given workplace, right? You might have Arroyo Slack gmail like we can go down the, we we live in a world now where a lot of a lot of places have four or five different programs that you're getting alerts from throughout the day you know i know i've I've gotten a few since we've been in this podcast (laughs) and one of the things that
3: you know we always encourage that people do is use the alerts through the hearse group and this is going to allow those to be better tailored for what your conditions of the room are during that time and one of my favorite little secrets is to add harvest day and disable all of my alerts on the harvest day so that my phone doesn't get blown up when we take the sensors out of the plants and so usually for harvest day i'll try to set it one or two days um, just in case you know i'm right in that range and then have your alerts and targets disabled for that period Um, And really what this is doing is making it so your alert ranges are following the plant life cycle. we're, We're changing environmentals and irrigations throughout that process. And so we can have those alerts just slightly tighter to what we're ideally doing during that time.
1: Yeah, y'all don't sleep on alerts. The whole idea is to make your lives easier. And just like you guys are all making continuous improvements, we are too. just doing what we can to to help you do your job. So Seth and Jason, thank you so much for that overview. And everybody out there, when you try the new notification center, let us know what you think of it. All right, Mandy, sending it over to you. What's going on on YouTube?
0: Yeah, thank you, Keisha. No more alert fatigue. I love that. Um, Yeah, let's get back to some questions while we have some time for the in the show. Chuck wants to know, I was wondering if you are stacking EC, how often do you drain to waste or waste um, until sorry, how often do you drain to waste? Or water until runoff, since the stacking will have old nutrients. Do you recommend every few days or week? My concern would be fluctuation in pH. I notice when I stack EC after a few days, the pH slowly lowers down.
2: Yeah, I mean, the pretty hard rule I live by is three days is the max I like to go without runoff. And that's for that reason, is that pH drift. So, Ideally, you know, and that's something that technology like the T12 allows us to do is you're going to be pushing a little bit of runoff every day to try to reset that ionic balance and stay on top of your plant's nutritional needs. But without technology, it's very tough. Like, you know, back when we were only looking at runoff, for instance, it was really difficult to really, you know, fine tune what your EC was doing in the root zone. And we have the ability now to say, hey, we can look at the graph every day we can actually push a a, an amount of runoff that's so small it's impossible to even collect but we're going to maintain our ph a little bit and try to replace that ionic balance but again without the technology it's really hard that's why for years a lot of us were running at lower ec situations because man, it's a heck of a lot easier to run low ec water a plant heavy and walk, try to be rinsing it up to your feed EC every day than it is to play with fire going high EC and have zero visibility on drifting pH.
0: Use the tools at your disposal, growers. Um, that is it for the questions on YouTube for now, so I'll pass it back to you, Keisha. Cool, thank you, Mandy. Yeah, we got a few more write-ins
1: that we've got, so let me, let me go with this one. Just for style, go a comment on YouTube. They wrote, is it necessary to reach field capacity when hydrating? And if so, and if I'm trying to generative steer and I want to hit 20 to 25% dryback, but I can achieve that dryback every day, should I just go down in media size? Did all that make sense?
2: <laughs> um, I'll address the media size right away. If you're hitting a 20 to 25% dryback every day, I don't think you need to go down in media size. You, you sound like you're either right in the pocket or potentially if we looked at your whole grow on the, a whole run, possibly on the ragged edge of being in too small of a pot. Um, and then to answer the first part, we typically want to hit field capacity every day. You know, part of the way we're steering these plants is we've got a, a water reservoir, right? We've got a gas tank and there's no reason not to top it off. The plant does not care if it's 55 percent, 60 percent or 40 percent that you get it up to it's living in the salinity of that environment and also dealing with how long it's been since the last time you gave it a nice oxygen shot to the root zone and told it to grow. So there's no reason not to bring it back to field capacity, 20, 25%. Keep doing what you're doing, man. And uh, the only real concern is if you uh, are hitting that last two weeks, ripening there, and suddenly you're going to more of like a 45, 50% back or something crazy, you know, where you're wilting your plants. And at that point you're losing the ability to ripen generatively and that's where you might want to say, Hey, I need a, I need a bigger pot. I need more gas in the tank to be able to drive this load all the way to the finish line.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Seth. Just for style. Keep us posted. Good luck out there. All right. We got a write in from our good friend, Dave Ray. He wrote, we have been battling some higher reservoir temperatures lately in the low 80 degree range. We keep the res sterile by adding bleach to keep ORP around 300 to 600. I know high water temps are not ideal, but what issues can the high temps cause, if any? Any thoughts on that?
3: So, oh, I mean, temperature of irrigation is going to also affect the temperature of your leaf surfaces. Um, you know, the plant's using water to cool itself uh, through transpiration. So, higher temps might end up, you know, seeing higher amounts of water being used um obviously dissolved oxygen any any gas dissolves better in cooler um cooler liquids and so typically we're you know we're shooting for that 70 degree range um you know say 67 to 73 degrees uh tank temperatures one to provide as much dissolved oxygen capabilities as possible and then two would be you know help that plant regulate its temperatures itself
2: yeah, I mean the the dissolved oxygen issue once you hit 80 degrees starts to become pretty significant. Um and another symptom I guess it ends up happening when you have that situation is right the warmer we get that water the more anaerobic bacteria likes to grow inside of it. We have low dissolved oxygen. The right. I mean There's this thing called an incubator and you know you grow all kinds of nasty microbi microorganisms in a lab but those incubators sit at you know what 80 85 degrees quite a bit of the time that's where things really like to grow so when we extrapolate that to the whole water system if i can't get my res down i know i'm going to have more biofilm in the res i'm going to have more biofilm in my irrigation lines that are leading from my res out to anywhere in the facility and then all, all those lines that are between the res in the room. And let's say they're on the ceiling of the room too. If I've got water that's hitting, let's say 85, 90 degrees, and I'm just cooking nutrient soup in there over time, that biofilm is going to build up to a point where, uh, if we were to cut that pipe in half, it would look like a clogged artery. So, you know, the, the high water, um, temperature not only is not optimal for plant health but really it's, it's a, it's an issue for facility maintenance. Um, And once your irrigation system starts to plug and you've got, let's say, 10 to 40% variance across your emitters. Well, now you're nothing you're doing is accurate. You're chasing your tail because some plants are getting 90% of the water. They should be because they only have a 10% plugged emitter and others are getting 10% of the water. They should be because they have a 90% plugged emitter. So get, get that problem solved really quickly before it, you know, cascades in, into others would be my advice on that one. It's
1: Every decision really does matter, doesn't it? Like,
2: Well, and it's, it's a challenge in some places, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely have some clients in some warmer environments where it is tough to get that water temperature down. And, all right, well, we might have identified a spot that takes a little bit of precedence on putting money into the facility over getting those brand new grow lights we wanted next round. You know, we... <laughs> or over switching nutrient companies, like, hey, now we need to solve a fundamental problem in the facility and prioritize that before thinking that just getting, uh, you know, I, I don't care how much chlorine dioxide you inject into your water or hypochlorous you put in, um, hot water is gonna grow things. So you gotta solve the root problem, not try to band-aid it
1: fantastic you guys thank you so much all right we have one question left i thought this was kind of a fun one <laughs> let's see what you think So scott wrote in asking do you guys do facility tours in pullman for companies interested in your products i have a t3 in seattle and would be eye-opening to see you guys' software at work what advice do you want to give scott
3: not traditionally um, but that being said if you're interested in seeing how it works Hit me up and an email or let's let's get a phone call going and and talk about uh some options we do have a a facility here that um we work with in a partnership that's got a lot
2: of our equipment so um hit us up and i'd be i'd be happy to show you how it works absolutely i mean the one thing i will clarify are where jason and i are usually sitting is a factory so not not too much actual um plant sensing going on there in action, but we do have clients that we work with that are happy to give tours and see it, let you see what's going on.
3: And while you're, while you're here, come check out how we manufacture electronics.
2: If that's interesting to you. Absolutely. Yeah. We just, uh, I I like to clarify to people that it's really not exciting. There's no beautiful weed plants at my office. I got like a fake one and chunk of rock wool. That's about it.
1: Actually, I don't mean to brag, y'all, but I'm going to be planting some seedlings this weekend. So I have weed plants in my office all the way in Northern California. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we got a bunch and, of in this year.
1: I don't know. I don't know what seeds I have available. Oh, so nice. Yeah, whatever I get, I'll grow it.
0: <laughs>
1: Fantastic. Awesome. All right. Anything else over on YouTube, Mandy?
0: Oh, I think that is it for the show for today. Thank everyone for your questions and the shout outs. It's always a great time with y'all. Oh, fantastic.
1: So good. Seth and Jason, so good to see you. Before we go, who can we thank for these fly hats that you're wearing today?
2: I've got my North Country Farms hat on. Got a shout out to Jacob Nelson over there. He hooked it up. Good old Cena hat. <laughs>
1: tried and true. Yes. And uh, me and Mandy, we are supplied fitted by Arroyo. (laughs) So, you know, all right. Nothing but the best. All right. That's it. Thank you, Seth and Jason, for another great session. Mandy, thank you for co-moderating with me. Couldn't do this without you. Chris, thank you for holding it down and producing some magic in the background. Um, thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of Arroya Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, check out our demo link on our website. Um, one of our expert would be, experts would be happy to walk you through all the different ways our platform can be used to improve your cultivation process as always let us know if there's a topic you'd like covered in a future office hour session you can post questions anytime in the Arroya app feel free to drop them in the chat send us an email at support.aroya at metergroup.com or send us a dm we are on all the socials and we love to hear from you thank you so much for your time we record every session we'll email everybody in attendance the link to the day's episode it also live on the Arroya youtube like subscribe i cannot talk like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if these conversations are helpful to you, please feel free to spread the word. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next time.
0: Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.